Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, the Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So the, all the generation from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. We're talking about the incarnation. The incarnation, it wasn't plan B, but this visit to planet Earth has always been the goal, the plan. We know that because the Spirit of Christ, hundreds of years before Jesus took on flesh, predicted his own death and resurrection. So you read the Old Testament, you see these prophecies. Jesus is going to come, there's going to be a Messiah. The second person of the Trinity took on flesh, took on a human nature. And remember, it's not laying aside his divine nature and having one nature at one moment, one nature the other, human nature, divine nature. No, he had both natures in one person. From the time he was conceived in Mary's womb, he's been the God-man. Jesus said, uh, has a truly human mind and a, a body and will, emotions, while at the same time upholding the world. And the kind of the picture we painted was the baby Jesus in his mother's arms was needy, human nature, but at the same time keeping Mary, his mother's blood pressure level divine nature it's a mystery isn't it it's amazing and we stand in awe of God and what he's done in Christ and last week we answered the question why did the second person of the Trinity take on flesh and dwell among us why the incarnation to reveal God to man we needed Jesus to come so we can say what's God like and now 
2,000 years later, we take the Gospels and we read through and we see what God is like because we read about Jesus walking the earth, the God-man. How did he handle situations? How did he respond to people when they say these types of things? We read the Gospels. He also came to reveal man his sin. You look at me and my life, you watch my life very closely, you can feel pretty good about yourself as you compare yourself to me. But when you compare yourself to Christ, we look really different, don't we? We see our sin, and that was one of the purposes for us to see our sin, to see our need for Christ. One of the other purposes, he came to redeem man. As Blake mentioned earlier, he came to redeem sinful man. He also came to destroy the work of the enemy, Satan. And as some of you talked about this morning in your small group, to restore creation. As creation, not only do we as human beings suffer because of sin, but all of creation groans, longing for restoration. And there's other purposes as well. Tom Nelson, he tells of a bumper sticker. It says on the bumper sticker, the solution to our problems will not come from the minds of those who created them. Now, all of a sudden, you're thinking about politicians, right? And rightly so. What this means is that people who caused our problems aren't going to be the ones who come up with a solution. There has to be something greater than ourselves, something or someone greater than ourselves to provide a solution to fix our problems. The world is broken, isn't it? It's not as it should be. Creation and man were perfect at one time. But sin entered the heart of man and the results are what? The results are us. Broken people. Sinful, selfish people. People with broken lives. And we can't fix our lives. We can't fix our problem. The biblical solution is going to come from outside ourselves. Outside mankind. God is going to have to enter our world, become a man, make atonement for sin, impose his will and judgment, and that's what the second person of the Trinity did. Jesus took on flesh, didn't he? In the Old Testament, he's called the Messiah. In the New Testament, he is the Christ. And only one person can qualify to be this man. And the Bible goes to great lengths to make sure that no one can imitate this person. Only one person qualifies to be the Christ King. We're in the middle of a Christmas season celebrating the arrival of this very person. And Matthew, what Matthew does is he puts a spotlight on him to show us who this person is. And, and as we sing this song, Behold the Lamb, that's what Matthew is doing. He, he's wanting us to behold the God-man, the Messiah. The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew, the tax collector, the former tax collector, right? The apostle of Jesus. And it was written to Jews, which if you read through the, the gospel time and time again, it's very evident from the content. Matthew constantly quotes the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures that the Jews would know. Luke's written to the Gentiles, Mark to the Romans, John to the peoples of the world, but Matthew is written to 
the Jews. And the specific person of the gospel, I mean, the, the specific purpose of the gospel of Matthew is not explicitly stated like Mark's gospel or in John's gospel, but can only be understood as we read the gospel as a whole. But the reason Matthew wrote was to teach that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, Old Testament prophetic hopes. He is the Messiah, the King, the Son of David, who took on flesh and inaugurated the kingdom of God by his life, death, and resurrection. And although many Jewish leaders of his day failed to recognize him as Lord, everyone who bows to his authority will make up the true church which is interestingly made up of Jew and Gentile. Thinking about Jesus as the Messiah, the, the King, the Christ, so many Christmas songs, right? We have Christ as King. Think about joy to the world, the first Noel, there's so many. Christ in the New Testament is the Messiah of the Old. And no one can imitate this person. And Matthew, that's what he does. He connects the Old Testament with the New. He takes the shadow of the Old Testament and the substance of the New Testament and brings them together. It's interesting if you read the, the last couple chapters of the Old Testament, Malachi, he says someone's coming and you turn the page to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 1, and lo and behold, Jesus has come. And Matthew is going to argue that Jesus is the King, the second person of the Trinity, the long-awaited Messiah. What I want you to do is turn there in Matthew. If you, if you don't have it, turn back there. It's the first book of the New Testament, page 959, again in your Black Pew Bible. And what I want us to do is just read the second part of the, the first chapter. Morgan so eloquently read the first part. He did a great job with all those names. I told him about about two months ago, and he's been practicing that text every day. For, no, I'm just kidding. You did great, bro. You did great. You did great. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 18 through 25. And this is the fun part of the chapter. The part he read, you're like going, mm, and we'll get to that in just a second. But this is the fun part, right? Look at verse 18. And we'll, we'll read some of this again on, on um, Christmas Eve. I hope you can come. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Well, Matthew, he's telling us of the baby Jesus' birth. But this preceding verse that Morgan read for us 
gives proof that this baby is the God-man, the incarnate, long-awaited Messiah. So we're going to look at this first part, this genealogy, and come away with some things, I think, that will help us this Christmas season. Verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And we see here a lineage of Jesus from the father of the Jews through David, the great king of Israel, down to Christ. And this is a family tree. My grandmother had a, a plaque right beside her. She had, a, she had a, a dining room table, if you will, and she had like a little, what do you call that little table? So like a little bar table? I don't, I don't know. A little island table, and that's where we always sat. We sat at the big table when everybody came over on Sunday. We sat at the little, little island table there. Um, and right on the wall where we were eating, she had this plaque, and it had this, and some of you have seen this. It's, the, the, it's like a vine has apples on it. And then the apples, they have little leaflets. And it has the, the names of the, the family's children and then their grandchildren on it. And it's funny because um, people kept having kids, and so the, the paint was different color green on the leaves, and the leaves would have the, the, the grandkids' names on it. But it was kind of like a family tree kind of deal. But we all have a, a family tree, and, and that's what this is. It's a family portrait if you will, of, of the God-man. And, and this isn't a favorite part of our, the most favorite part of the Bible for us, um, and, and understandably so. We usually kind of skim over that, right? Very seldom inspired by these, these family trees. And, and I know some of you are thinking, well, what's the Lord thinking here? Father, what are you thinking? You know, it's kind of like, why? Why do we have poison ivy and wasp and why do children go through growing pains as they grow? It just doesn't make any sense to us. Especially you get to First Chronicles. And, and some of us, we have these noble ideas of reading through the Bible in a year. And I think that's great. I think you should be able to do that. I think you should do it uh, regularly. And, um, and you do really well. If you can get through Leviticus, you're like, man, I'm just, everybody says Leviticus is really hard and it can't be. But you get through Leviticus and you think you're kind of made it, you get to First Chronicles and the first nine chapters, that's all it is, just family trees, family portrait, genealogies. And what do we do when we read that? We try to, we want to, we want to be, we want to be able to say at the end, we've read through the Bible all the way through from cover to cover. And we don't want to skim, but it's just hard not to, right? You just kind of speed reading through there, but it's just dry reading. And we're like, man, what's the point of all of this, right? And we skim it. But for us, genealogies aren't very important. Like, think about your grandparents. What are your grandparents' full names? Do you know your grandparents' full names? Not like Nana, Papa. I mean, like real names. Do you know them? What about your great-grandparents? Do you know their full names? Yeah, for us, most of us are like, nah, I don't know. And we don't even care. That's what's crazy. You know, it's kind of kind of feel bad. Like, we don't want to say it out loud, but we don't really care. We don't know. See, everybody's going, see, I'm looking at all the things. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We don't know what, we, the family trees aren't really important to us. You know, it's kind of ingrained in us. Like, it don't really matter who our family is. We can overcome, right? Um, but to, to an Israelite, 
Their lineage, their heritage, their family tree was of utmost importance. I mean, think about it. When the Israelites entered the promised land, who got what land? And how much did you get? Well, it depended on your family tree, what tribe you were from. And the year of Jubilee, every 50 years, property was to be returned to its original owner. So it was essential for you to be able to prove your ancestry in order to get your family land back. Think about Judah after being in exile for 70 years in Babylon. They were able to return home. And Nehemiah chapter 11, verse 20, what does it tell us? It tells us that they moved to their place of their ancestors, so they had to know their lineage. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were all in the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. In other words, you moved back to the place that was your family's land, right? In the New Testament, in Jesus' day, people still knew their lineage. Paul, Saul, right? The apostle, his name was changed to Paul. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. Yeah, so they still knew their, their family heritage, their lineage. In fact, in, in the Gospel of Luke, we read of Mary and Joseph returning to Bethlehem. Why? It was the place of their ancestry, Luke chapter 2. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Why? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. And today, unfortunately, Jews, they don't have proof of their lineage because 70 AD, all the records were destroyed when the temple was destroyed, right? So today, if someone claimed to be the Messiah, you know, some Jews are still waiting on the Messiah to come, there would be no way to prove they had the appropriate lineage. Isn't that ironic? How the temple was destroyed just a few years after Jesus' death. Well, getting back to our Genealogy here. What is the appropriate lineage or pedigree for the Messiah? Matthew, he shows us and establishes that Jesus met all of those requirements and is the Messiah indeed, the long-awaited king, the son of David. We know that in order to be a king, he had to have a royal pedigree. And notice right off the bat, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it's interesting, in verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So he uses the term Messiah, Christ, here as bookends for this genealogy. And what's his point? Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. He's the one we've been anticipating. And the names here that we, as, you, as Morgan read through those names, we won't go through all of those names and their stories. And we could we have a lot of stories to tell in the first two sections of names. The last sections, they're unknown to us. But these names are like a combination lock. You remember combination locks? Do y'all still have combination locks on your lockers at school? Is that the way it works, Jerry? Um, a combination lock is one in which you have to get all the numbers right, but they have to be in the right order and right sequence, right? Well, you think about the prophecies, hundreds of prophecies concerning Jesus, and they all had to be right in order for this thing to work out. And all these names are essential. Um, and this is family true. What's going to happen is Matthew, he's going to eliminate every nation but one, every tribe of the nation of Israel but one, every city but one, every family but 
one. Every person in the family, but one. This is what we learned from the genealogy. The first thing we learn is the second person of the Trinity took on flesh and fulfilled the Davidic covenant. He is the son of David, the long-awaited king. He's called the son of David. And, and we know this. This is a very familiar passage for us, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 16. This is the, the Davidic covenant, the promise God made David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established for ever. This is a well-known passage, a promise to David that he'll have an heir on the throne forever and ever and ever and ever. And we see this confirmed throughout the Old Testament. From the time this is given until the, 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 the end of the Old Covenant, we see this this prophecy reiterated time and time and time again. God had promised that a descendant of David would sit on the throne. And it's interesting, this whole structure of the genealogy is centered around David. And even though God's promise was delayed with the splitting of the kingdom, right? They had not been forgotten. Judah was carried into exile. And the, the existence of the king of Israel seemed to have ceased, but that was just for a short time. David's tree had been hacked off. But what's Isaiah chapter 11 say? But from that stump, a new branch would sprout. In fact, Jesus, all throughout the New Testament, he's called the son of David. He's never mentioned outside this genealogy called the son of Abraham. It's always the son of David. And it's interesting that Matthew gives us Jesus' lineage through his father Joseph. This is really interesting. I think you'll, you'll, this is something you'll take with you if you don't take anything else. Matthew gives us Jesus' lineage through the father Joseph. Luke gives us his lineage through Mary. Well, Mary was a descendant of David through his son Nathan. And this is important because it's through Mary that Jesus is the son of David. I mean, Jesus was born of Mary, but she's a virgin. Notice how Matthew is careful to note this. Look at verse 16. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called Christ. He makes sure he mentions her name because that is really important. Mary was a virgin, so Joseph had no part in Jesus' birth. So it was essential that Mary be of the David's line as well. Or Jesus could not truly be a son of David. He wouldn't have royal blood. Kind of interesting. So you might ask, why did Matthew go through Joseph's lineage? Well, Joseph was a man. How many queens did Israel have? Any queens? You think of queens mentioned in the Scripture? You had a lot of kings, right? The father had the right to rule, not the mother. The the line of the father was the legal right or the legal line to the throne. Jesus had to have a mother who was descendant of David who he could have royal blood through, but also a father who was descendant so he could have legal rights to the throne. Jesus is the 
son of David, filling this Davidic covenant. The second thing we see is that Jesus, the incarnate son of God, fulfills the Abrahamic covenant. He says, the son of Abraham. See, I'm talking about Morgan. I'm talking about all these names that I can pronounce. See, David and Abraham. I'm just sticking with those, right? You learn little tricks of being a preacher sometimes. You do things like that. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, in order to be a son of David, Jesus had to be the son of Abraham, even though he's not referred to in that way. But again, we have the Abrahamic covenant, Genesis chapter uh, 22, verse 17 through 18. God speaking to Abraham, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant. God promised Abraham. Through Abraham, through his descendant, all the nations of the world will be blessed. So Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. And by naming Abraham, of course, Matthew eliminates every nation except Israel because salvation is from the Jews. John chapter 4, verse 22. You worship what you do not worship. You remember this conversation that Jesus had with the Samaritan woman? We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. In verse 2, we move on from David and Abraham to Judah. See, that's easy to pronounce too. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Well, choosing Judah eliminates 11 twelfths of the tribes of Israel. You have 12 tribes. Well, we just eliminated 11 of them. Prophecy in Genesis 49, verse 8 through 10. Jacob is, is about to die, and he's blessing each of his sons. He had 12. And he speaks to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until a tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of his peoples. In other words, you're like, well, what's that exactly? I mean, the scepter is like what the king holds, right? The Messiah is going to come through the line of Judah. This prophecy is fulfilled in Christ. Little by little, eliminating nations, tribes, families, persons. Leads us to a next point. Jesus, the God-man, he took on flesh to be the Savior of the world. One of the, one of the purposes of the incarnation, to be our Redeemer. He came to save the world. and In fact, his name, Jesus, is equivalent to the Old Testament name Joshua, means Savior. And it's interesting, is if you read through this genealogy, and you start picking out, if you start going through with a fine-tooth comb and picking out all the peoples in this genealogy, what you find, it's interesting, there's a lot of Gentiles. Matthew's writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to Jews. He's trying to convince them to behold the Lamb, who is Christ, who fulfilled all the old covenant promises. But in this genealogy, there's a lot of Gentiles mentioned. And what was the Jews? What was their attitude during the, the days of Christ? What were the, Gent, the Jewish uh, mindset about Gentiles? They didn't think very highly of them. But yet Jesus, the Messiah's lineage, is full of Gentiles. And not just Gentiles, but Gentile women. Kind of interesting. 
Look at verse 3. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Kind of crazy story. She pretended to be a prostitute. She slept with Judah. She conceived this child by, you call it incest. And that was that. Kind of strange. But Tamar is mentioned there in his lineage. Look at verse 5. Rahab. You remember Rahab? What was her profession? She wasn't, she wasn't no accountant. Do you remember Jericho? Yeah, Rahab, she hid the spies. Well, she was a, a prostitute. Yeah. And then you have Ruth in verse 5. Even though everything we think about when you think about Ruth is all noble, but she was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. Remember Naomi took her sons. It was a, her and her husband. They went to Moab because of a famine. And there, the husband passed away, or her two sons married Moabite women. One of them was Ruth. Yeah. After her, both her sons died, she took Ruth back to Israel, where Israel got remarried to Boaz, right? But she was a Moabite. Interesting. And it's interesting. If you think about if you, if you take that one step further, do you know where the nation of, or the Moabites came from? kind of a scandalous story in itself, right? You remember Lot? Abraham's nephew Lot? He had two daughters. Lot got a little tore up. The daughters took advantage of him. And one of those sons were was Moab. Quite scandalous. Amazing, really. How this all came together. And in verse 6, the crowning jewel of the Gentile uh, women of Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Interesting, isn't it? This is the family tree, the royal lineage of the Messiah, and it contains Gentiles. And it's not surprising we think about Jesus as he is about to ascend into heaven. What did he tell his disciples? He commissions them and says, Go and go. He didn't say go just to stay in Israel stay around Jerusalem. No, he says go to the uttermost, right? Making disciples of all the nations. And we understand that. Yeah, this family tree is made up of a lot of Gentiles here. But I think it shows that the Messiah did indeed come to save not just Jews, but Gentiles. And there's great men and women in this group. I mean, think about Ruth. She's a Gentile, but she's a great noble woman. Everything we read about her is, is pretty, pretty, pretty good, right? Some great men listed here. Great men. But there's also some ragamuffins in this list as well, isn't it? I mean, you have, you have Abraham, Boaz, Ruth, Asa, Hezekiah, Josiah. Those are all like, oh, we think highly of these people. But then you, there's a lot of scoundrels here. I mean, even Abraham, right, has his difficulty, right, with his wife. He wasn't the best husband in the world. Isaac and Jacob, they weren't very good fathers. Judah, he wasn't a very good example for us. Even David, think about David. Even now he's a man after God's own heart. Look at all the things that David did, his missteps and rebellion and sin. Solomon, I mean, think about Solomon because of his sin. The kingdom was split under his son Rehoboam. Manasseh, he's the most evil of all the kings. And then the last group there is unknown people in the last 
those last group of 14. So what's Matthew trying to do? He's, he's listing the, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's listing genius, Jesus' genealogy. What is he trying to do? How many of you have family members you're not very proud of? Yeah, I was just kidding. I didn't want you to raise hands. I mean, literally, John, you're in the, you're in the Dollar General with your kids, and then you see somebody walk in the other side, and all of a sudden you're like, hey, we don't really need this. Let's go. I've done that once or twice. Or seriously, I have. God inspired this Jew, Matthew, to write this to Jews. This is the lineage of their king. I think what he's trying to do there is show us that Jesus is the Savior who came from a long line of sinners to save sinners. First 14 names, they're patriarchs, they're judges, the second are kings, and the third is just unknown, nobody people, you know? Kind of like me. Lastly, I think we when we read through this genealogy, um, think about it, we... we come away understanding that God is faithful to keep his word. He made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to David. And he kept them. And Jesus, the incarnate son of God, fulfilled both these covenants. He left heaven and he took on flesh. And by doing so, he he fulfilled these promises. So God is a promise keeper. Look at verse 12 real quick and we're, we're going to wrap this thing up. This is interesting. Verse 12. How do you pronounce that first name, Morgan? Jeconiah. Jeconiah. Sounds good to me, brother. That's awesome. Jeconiah. He's also called Jehoachin. He was given a second name. Um, he's in this lineage of Jesus through Joseph line, but Jeremiah 22, verse 30. It's real interesting. Speaking of Jeconiah, Thus saith the Lord, this is the Lord speaking, Write this man down as childless, a man who shall not succeed in his days, for none of his offspring shall succeed in sitting on the throne of David and ruling again in Judah. This is the word of the Lord speaking about Jeconiah. There in verse 12. And Jeconiah is listed. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shiltiel, and Shiltiel the father of Zerubbabel. And it goes on and goes on and goes on. This line and Joseph's line all the way down to Christ. It says that he was cursed, he was, and that was because he was evil. He was wicked. He didn't love the Lord. It says that none of his offspring was sit on the throne of David. And that's interesting because he's in this lineage. And if Jesus had been, think about it, the way this is all set up. This is Joseph's line, but... Mary was a virgin. He didn't have any Joseph's blood in him, right? If Jesus had been the real blood son of Joseph, he could not have sat on the throne because he would have been cursed. God said none of this man's seed will sit on the throne. But that virgin birth, man, it just clears all that up, doesn't it? None of Jeconiah's blood flowed through the Jesus' veins, right? because he wasn't a biological child of Joseph. So this curse is bypassed by bypassing Joseph and having Jesus born of a virgin. He guarded every detail without contradiction, like numbers on a combination lock. All these details falling into place. 
And so we, we come to the conclusion of this, this study of the incarnation. And we're going to read Christmas Eve. We'll read this, the, the birth narratives of Matthew and Luke in chronological order. And we're going to sing Christmas songs. I hope you can come if, you're, if your schedule allows it. But let's think about this incarnation. We've seen God speak through the prophets hundreds and thousands of years ago, foretelling of the second person of the Trinity taking on flesh and coming to earth. And we've talked about how that, we've seen in Scripture how this, this God-man had a human nature and a divine nature, and, and, and it wasn't at one mode, you know, one mode and then one mode. And it was no, both natures at simultaneously. And it, it causes us to, to, to be in awe of the Lord and His plan and how that all worked. And we see the purposes of it in Scripture to reveal God to man. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. Helps us see our sin. Man, I, I've got, I'm a pretty good fella. Not when you see God in the flesh. We can't claim that. And then we see the God-man. Even though he lived perfectly, what did he do? He went to the cross willingly. That wasn't plan B. That was a plan all along. For the second person of the Trinity to take on flesh, to become man, to be punished for sinners like you and me. And then on the third day, to be raised from the dead. So that you and I could have a relationship with the Father. You say, well, what, what's, what, what do we do with this genealogy and all this? Well, we, we're seeing that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who God foretold would come. He left heaven. He took on flesh. He became the divine man and the God man. He's divine and human. And he did that so he could save sinners. So by way of application, for us who've yet to repent and trust Christ's work on the cross as our own, the application will be we need to repent and believe. And that's, that's the summation of Jesus' teaching. If you read through the Gospels, read through them, read through them, read through them, read through them, you're going to come to the conclusion his, his sermon was a lot shorter than mine. In a nutshell, repent and believe. And have you repented of your sin? Have you turned from your sin? Have you forsaken it? And have you began following Christ in obedience? And have you believed? Have you, are you trusted? What are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? So well, I'm, I'm, I'm a good, good person. I'm okay. I, I do this. I do that. I had never hurt anybody. I'm a pretty good person. That's the wrong answer. What are you trusting in? The answer is Jesus and what he did for me. It doesn't matter about what you do and what you've done and how good this and how that. That doesn't matter. I'm a good mom. I'm a, I'm a faithful spouse. That doesn't get it because you're still a sinner. You've rebelled against the Lord in so many ways. And because of that, because God is just, he has to pour out his wrath upon you. And that's the wrath that Jesus received on the cross 2,000 years ago. 
amazing? That's why God came and took on flesh, so He could take that punishment for you and for me. He was innocent. Pilate, washing his hands as he turns Jesus over to the to the, his his guards to put him to death. I washed my hand of this innocent man. But Jesus willingly went to the cross to take on the Father's wrath so you and I could be forgiven. Amazing. What love the, the Lord has for us. What mercy and what grace. So by, by way of application, if you've not to repent and, and, and trust Christ, you need to do that today. And if you're a believer in, in Christ, which there's the church is here where many of us have repented and believed, what's the application for us? Be in awe. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb who left heaven and took on flesh so that we could be reconciled to the Father and worship Him and tell people about them. Christmas season, let's, let's look for opportunities to tell people about Jesus. Because Christmas is in, in, in our culture is, is about a whole lot of things, and, and, and most of those things are awesome and wonderful. I can't wait. I'm looking forward to getting together with my family and spending time together. And, but Christmas is about the Incarnation. One of the greatest, wonderful things that's ever happened. God took on flesh, came to do many things, but one of the things He came to do is to redeem man. Have you been redeemed? Let's pray as a worship team comes up. We're going to sing one song, sing us out of here. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge You are good, and Your Word is wonderful and incredible, and it's perfect and it's, it's good for us to know and study and read and meditate on. And Father, we're thankful for this, this chapter in Matthew, this genealogy that shows us that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. He checked off every box. We can eliminate every nation, every tribe, every family, every individual. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God who came to take the wrath of the Father on behalf of sinners. And Father, I, I pray that if there's anybody here that's yet to repent and trust you, trust Christ's work on the cross as their own, I pray that they would do so today. Father, they would recognize their need for you. And Father, there's anybody here who, who thinks that by coming to church and that they're a good person or we're meeting here because we got it all together, Father, I pray that you would correct that. Father, we're here not because we're good and got it together. We're here because we're needy and we're sinful. And we need the church. We need one another. We need you to help us. And through the church, you do that. Father, if there's any lost people here, save them today. And Father, for us, the church may use this genealogy to encourage us, empower us, to share the good news this Christmas season, and to live reverent lives and worship to you and all of you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his birth and his life, for his death and his resurrection. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.